Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official RBYA podcast. We hope that whatever content we bring to you, whether it be messages or interviews or whatever else it may be, we hope that it would be edifying, that it would help you grow in maturity and in faith and the, in the knowledge of God. And we also hope that you stick around for any future announcements or updates. We hope you enjoy. Hey, guys, let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that you are our rock and our redeemer, that without you we wouldn't be here without the sacrifice of your son on the cross for our sins. We wouldn't be able to recognize who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to see you again in a new light, in a greater light for who you are, in your holiness, in your majesty. Speak through me, Lord, the weak vessel. I pray that you would speak to our hearts according to our needs. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's listening people said, amen. Amen. How are you guys? Good. Some of you are tired, maybe from the rain, maybe from the rafting. Uh, I hope you had a great day today. I know I did. It was really enjoyable. Um, And tonight I'm just uh, encouraged to be here with you again it's, funny to, it's fun to actually get to know some of you more and to also uh, see your uh, level of Romanian. Some of you are pretty good at it. Some of you are not as good. Um, I heard someone, not from here, but uh, a lady was telling me that she wants, to go, she wants me to go to her place. She was saying to me, hi, la mina casa, because we uh, want to do some cuckooing, cuckooing. And I thought, what does cuckooing mean? And she wanted to say gatim, the ending from gatim, meaning cooking, to cook. So she ended up with kukuim. Uh, she wanted to cook something, but she wanted to kukuim. I didn't really get it until later on. I also saw a brother, he was talking with another brother, and he said, uh, uh, he was hanging off the phone and says, hey man, I'll touch you later, and turned off the phone. And I thought, oh, that's a good one, it's a good combination, I think he totally got it wrong. Uh, or I said it. Here's something that I said not long ago. I was actually in a very serious meeting, and uh, I wanted to say something serious, but I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to to break some bad news, and I said, hey, guys, I'm sorry for being a poopy parter. And they're like, what? You mean party pooper? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not really good, is it, if you have a poopy parter? So I'm still learning my own own ways with American uh, and in English, Romanian, and all those phrases. And some of you might still find yourself in those funny situations where you put them together. Some of you don't know enough Romanian to even be funny, so that's fine. Um, it's okay. It, it, you're, not, you're missing some, something, but it's okay. Hey, um, tonight I want to continue our journey through the Lord's Prayer. And as you saw on this morning, we're going to focus on, on a specific attribute of God this evening, God's holiness. So let me read again. Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 7 today. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. And when you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. By the way, when we talked here about this, that people, when they repeat the same things, they do it because they think that First of all, they do it out of just immaturity. Other times, actually, I should have said this last night, other times people repeat the same things thinking that it's something magical. I'm not sure if you've uh, been in those kind, of, those kind of churches, those kind of situations where they say, if you just repeat Jesus, 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 or the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of, or blah, blah, blood, something magical is going to happen. Uh, if you've been maybe in a Pentecostal background, even if you speak in tongues, you hear the same words over and over again. This is a verse that speaks very uh, emphatically against using the same words over and over again. Why is this important? Because the pagans, the Gentiles, use incantations and special type of speaking to, uh, to maybe move the demonic spirits, the spirits of the gods around them. And God says, I don't need that kind of magical speech. You don't need to repeat stuff to me on a regular basis. That's meaningless thought. So that's kind of the thought process here. When you are praying, do not say meaningless repetition. So do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So how should you pray? Pray then in this way, verse 9, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What does it mean to make God's name holy? And I love what Val was sharing yesterday, and I think he was right on as he was talking about the idea that God's name represents, represents something. God's name represents his character. God's name represents his persona, his personhood, his being. And that's true with all of us in our lives, isn't it? And he was talking about you, each one of you having a last name that represents your family, your dad's or mom's reputation, integrity, character. But what does it mean to make God's name holy? How can we make God's name holy? If you just, just think about for a second here, at the beginning, God created us, Adam and Eve, he created them in his image and likeness, the Bible says. And I won't have time to go in Genesis 1.26 with you to actually unpack those verses, but just think about image and likeness. What does that mean? God created us to reflect him. And it's interesting, uh, there are many discussions about what does that mean? And primarily, I think it has to do with function, but also has to do with the fact that we are relationship, we, have, we are relational beings. We are, we are functioning as creative beings, as moral beings. We are functioning as spiritual beings. But beyond anything, beyond anything that I just shared, there's also the function. Image and likeness, in the writings of Moses, for example, we're not told what it is, but in the writings of others, uh, other literature in those times, Apparently, image and likeness was used in the description of people who are supposed, or statues are supposed to represent their king. So, for example, if Pharaoh wanted to send some ambassadors in his name, he says he would send a, a paper in which he says, this guy comes in my image and likeness. It's the same phrasing. He has the same function as I would have. You're supposed to represent me wherever I go. So God created us to represent him or the ends of the earth. He says, fulfill this commandment, multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with his character, with God's character. Well, something happened, we know this in Genesis 3, that really messed up everything, you know. Sin came in. And Adam and Eve wanted to do it their own way. They didn't want to represent God. They wanted to represent what they thought should, should be represented, their own will. And what happened next? That... Everything went south. They did find it their own way. And God's name was not proclaimed to the ends of the earth with the holiness that God wanted it to be represented. So God wasn't not only, on, from that point on, wasn't only on a quest to redeem human beings, ultimately sending Christ, but also was on a quest to actually proclaim His name, to show His character character all throughout generations. And actually, one of the reasons why God gave the law to Moses was to point out that God is holy, that He's different, that He's separate, that all the other gods that human beings created, that it's not like them. You see, all human beings created were some gods that were just better than them. They were in their likeness, but just a little bit better. And God is not in that league. God is someone, someone different altogether. He's pure, He's perfect, He's set apart. And that's what holy means. And for us to have a better understanding of this idea of holiness, I want you to open with me in Isaiah chapter 6. Because that's one of the key passages that talks about God's holiness. So let me open there and read those verses. I know you read them in the morning, you're familiar with them. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a, a people with of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The one, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. 
He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, for you to understand a little bit of this passage, let me give you a little bit of context. And bear with me, I know you're tired, but just let me give you some historical context here. Isaiah wrote, writes these uh, things here, somewhere in year 730 B.C. So imagine Jesus was born somewhere year zero, and maybe a few years before that. Now we are in 2021 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Imagine 700 B.C., before Jesus. So almost 2700 years before this time. Isaiah writes to a people that were in a very dire situation. And Isaiah writes in a, in a time and place where Israel and Judah are two countries, like Moldova and Romania, if you're familiar with that. What happened after Solomon, Solomon uh, died, Rehoboam, his son came about, and Rehoboam wasn't very wise. He, he was actually a very smart aleck. He, he trusted his friends more than he trusted God's word. And God, under him, pretty much divided the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, into two kingdoms. And the ten tribes north became Israel, and the two tribes south became Judah, even though it was Benjamin and Judah. But Benjamin was so small, it was almost insignificant. And from that point on, and this is important, every time you read Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, remember there are actually two countries. Think about Moldova and Romania. And if you're from Moldova, you wouldn't like me to, be, to be said that you're from Romania, even though historically, Moldova used to be in Romania. But right now, it's a different country. And that's how Judah and Israel was. But Isaiah was called by God to write prophecies or write a word of warning both to Israel and then to Judah. Now Israel had only bad kings all throughout the history. And in 722, God punished them with an ultimate punishment with Assyrians came and pretty much destroyed the country and took them into captivity. Judah, though, they had all throughout some good kings. And they were only sent into exile in between 605 to 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Now we're going back to Isaiah because this is important. Isaiah right now, in chapter 6, is in a very hard spot to be in. He just served under a guy whose name was Uzziah. And Uzziah, he reigned in Judah for 40 years. And even though he was obnoxious at the time, he was proud, egotistic. Actually, that's what led to his death at one point because he was too proud even though he had all these things happening in his life, he still was a good king. He'd done things that were good for our people and for people, God's people. He tried to trust God, even though he was a proud man. Now, this guy died, and he, Isaiah, is faced with a very dire situation. Now, Isaiah, most likely, was the cousin of the king. That's what a lot of commentators say. He was somehow related with the king. He had a very high position in the court in the courts, and he knew the insights of the politics of the kingdom. And he knew that the next guy in charge, the next guy in line, is actually a guy who is a nephew of Uzziah, his name is Ahaz, and this guy was no good. This guy did not treat God well, did not care about God, and he wanted to tell, take the people out. So imagine this. There's a very harsh situation where the country is. You have a president or a king who is a very beneficial uh, king to the Christians or the, the people of God. You think, man, this is finally, our nation is saved. Now, there are many wretched, uh, wretched kings. We have one good guy. And this guy dies, and there's someone taking over who's not a good guy. And Isaiah was right to be concerned because this guy comes and actually Ahaz starts to rule for 16 years. And you know one of the things he does? He not only takes God's temple or God's worship uh, to a second or third degree, but he actually brings Baals and Astarteas and all these all this weird statues of weird, weird gods. And also, he, he commands the people of God to throw their children into fire for Moloch, including he. He does the same thing. So it's a pretty dire situation. It's a thing that you, if you're in Isaiah's shoes, you wonder to yourself, man, what's going to happen with this world? We're really going south. Now you understand why I preached this sermon right after the elections. Because I wanted to remind my church, and I want to remind you, 
what God reminded Isaiah. That there's a true king on the throne. And he's holy above all things. There is someone else who's king and it's not what we see with our open eyes. What's going on here in the year of King Uzziah's death? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Now, some obvious observation here. What was going on? He saw the king sitting on the throne. He was, who was the king? The Lord. On this lofty throne, meaning it was very high above. High and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Now, I'm not sure how many of you uh, know this, but the train of the robe, that's an important thing. And I don't want to see your hands up, but I want to ask the question, how many of you watched the, the royal wedding between Meghan Markle and Harry? Was it Prince Harry? Or the other one, what was it William and Catherine or Caitlin? Catherine, one of them. Caitlin, was it? Catherine, okay. One of the things, I didn't watch it, by the way. I saw pictures, but my wife told me more about it, okay? One of the things I did see was that one of the, the interesting things that, that was different than any other weddings was the throne the, the, the train of her robe. You remember how long it was? It was like all the Westminster Abbey was filled with the train of her robe. Why is that? Why not have a simple one? Because that was a show or a, an imagery of the opulence and majesty. This is the, the princess of princesses. Like she's the one. Like, yeah, it's nice that you guys got married or you won't get married, but this is the one that if she gets married, everyone has to watch. And here's her, how, how majestic is her marriage. Her throne, her train of the robe has to be long. Because that was a big deal. This was a, a sign of opulence, of majesty. Now, in the throne of God, we find out that the train of his robe filled the temple. It was so big. It was so majestic, so great, that there was no spot to hide. There's no place to hide of it. God's train was everywhere. And another detail that I love, what's God doing while he was, while Isaiah saw him? What was God doing? Sitting. You see that? Can you imagine this? God, I don't have a chair here. God's relaxing on the throne. Now, for a second, think about it. You're in Isaiah's shoes. Man, the world is going south. Judah is the only last place on earth of God's presence and holiness. Only place that keeps some kind of a rule of God. And it's going south. And his best guy in, the, in Judah just died. And another wicked man took over. Wouldn't you see God? Wouldn't you imagine God to be like, man, scratching his head and say, man, you know, what, what should I do? What should I do? But God is not like that. He's relaxed. He's sitting down, twindling his thumbs and saying, everything is just well in paradise. Everything is going according to my will. Think about that. Isn't that crazy? What does that tell you about God? That everything that happens in this world it's according to his will and according to his plan. Nothing surprises him. Nothing comes in and takes him by surprise. Nothing is unexpected. Like, he's not there with a the council and just brought, bringing in the best minds of, of, of heaven and all the angels and Michael and Gabriel and saying, man, guys, what should we do? God is on the throne and he's sitting. And the Bible says that the seraphim stood above him each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, what is the difference between cherubim and seraphim? We talked in Osmogum today. Just a simple one. Seraphims have six wings, and cherubims have four wings. Very simple. And this guy has six wings. Apparently, they have a special, special uh, set of wings. They can do more. Now, let me... Just ask you the question, why were they covering their faces? And why are they covering their feet? Why do you think? These are angels, for goodness sake. Let me ask you this. What was the reaction of um, anyone in the scripture who saw an angel? What was the reaction? Fall on the ground. 
shocked, scared. And what was the natural environment, or what was the natural uh, or nature's uh, uh, changes in the way that maybe a room changed or, or the way the sky looked when an angel showed up? What was something that was out of the ordinary in nature? A light, brightness, something that you couldn't even look at because these guys were so pure, they were so special, they were so perfect, they were so full of light that you couldn't even see them. Now think about it for a second. If these guys were so pure and so perfect, why in the world do they need to cover their face and their feet? Because even though they are perfect beings, they're not as perfect as their creator. They're still created beings. They're still not as perfect as our God. They're still not as holy as our God. Let that sink in for a little bit. Can you imagine having an angel coming in our room tonight? We would be all on the ground. We would be afraid. Then what about God's presence? Sometimes we sing, Lord, just come in our presence. We want you here, Lord, that we shake our hands. We're like, oh, yes. Are we actually aware of what we're asking? Do you recognize what we're asking? These guys couldn't stay in God's presence, even though they were perfect. These were not angels that were, by the way, there were some angels that, that disobeyed God, and those are not in God's presence anymore. They're, they are with Satan. But these guys are not. These are the ones who obeyed God. So what is it saying next? And one called to un out to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, very interesting. The word holy, kadosh, means something very interesting. It means set apart. It means special, pure, different than anything that we know. It means pure to perfection. That's what the word holy means. Now, here, interesting, they're singing out holy, holy, holy three times. There's no place in the Bible where anything else is presented as being three times of God. God is never presented as being love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 or righteous, righteous, righteous. Even though God is love, God is holy, God is righteous, but God is holy, holy, holy three times. It's the way you can say in in Hebrew, that God is the greatest of all. He's the most perfect thing you can think of. The ultimate holiness. Now let me share a few words with you from an author that I thought really encouraged me to remember God's holiness. Why is it that God is so holy? Ray Orland, a commentator, said, God's holiness is simply His goodness, godness in all His attributes, works, and ways. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. It's the only attribute by which, by which God is described three times. In His essence, before you talk about the other attributes, God is holy. He's set aside, different than us. He's not like us only bigger and nicer. He is in a different league, in a category all together. God is holy. God is different. And by the way, because God is on the throne, because God is holy, the Bible says that He's the one who appoints kings. He's the one who actually allows kings to get, come up, and He's the one who takes kings down. Listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for He has the glory of God. The skies display, display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Praise the name of God forever, for he, he knows all things. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and set up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he's surrounded by light. God is the one who sets up these kings. Listen to Job 12. He removes the royal robe of kings. They are led away with ropes around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped of statues. He overthrows, overthrows those with long years in power. 
He silences the trusted advisor and removes the insight of the elders. He uncovers mysteries hidden in darkness. He brings light to the deepest gloom. He builds up nations and he destroys them. He expands nations and he abandons them. He strips kings of understanding and leaves them wandering in pathless wasteland. You wonder who's on the throne, even today, by the way, in our world. Maybe some of you are disappointed that we have the president we have right now, or you're disappointed how the world goes there now, and you wonder, who's in charge? And I want you to remember that God is in charge. The holy God is in charge of all things. Our God is in charge of all things. So, we find out that he's, they are calling holy, 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 God's holiness is what sets him apart. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now wait a second. The whole earth is full of his glory. Didn't we just say that Ahaz is the one who took over and he was a bad guy and Israel was not doing well and the other nations were not doing well? How can the earth be filled with his glory? There are two answers from commentators on this passage here, on this sentence. Some people think, no, it is filled with his glory because the creation proclaims his glory. You don't have to go far away to see that. Psalm 19 says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The sky displays craftsmanship. We see that all throughout. God's glory is displaying creation. But other Hebrew scholars says, say and point out the fact that here there's no verb is. So it reads in Hebrew literally, the, all, the whole earth full of his glory. And a lot of people say, no, it means that it will be full of his glory. And actually, Jesus speaks about this, that one day we'll be having God's glory in fullness. So it can be both ways. You can say, yes, we can see still God's glory in creation, but we cannot see fully God's glory as we wanted to see in our lives until the day when Jesus comes back. And the foundation of the thresholds shook the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. These guys were scary. These seraphim were not some chubby babies with wings, but some fearful angels whose voices sounded like jet fighters. When they were saying, holy, 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 the whole temple shook. This was a very majestic scene. Something out of the ordinary, something out of the, even our imagination. And what happens next? We find out the response from Isaiah, listen to verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a little bit interesting, because if you knew more about Isaiah, you realize, why is this so important? Isaiah was considered to be a, one of the most moral men of his time. He was a man who actually had access in the temple, first and foremost. Second, a man who was of very more high moral quality. He was known as being one of the most moral people of his time. Hence, he was called by God to be a prophet. He was known for his morality, for his goodness, if you will. He represented the best of the best in his time. Nevertheless, when he goes and he's confronted with God's holiness, what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. Why is that? He says it. Because I am, I have unclean lips, he says here. I am a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? He talks trash? Most likely he wasn't. Unclean lips are representative of his heart. I love what a, a brother of mine said in a sermon that I listened on James and talking about the tongue. You see, our words, our tongues, go deep down into the, like a bucket, into the, the well of our hearts and bring back up to the surface whatever we have there and we set it, share it. It doesn't mean we talk trash, but when we say things about the world about others, it kind of displays our uncleanness. It displays our hearts when, when we disobey uh, authorities, when we disobey our parents, when we disobey people that we shouldn't, 
uh, our employers, when we talk uh, gossip, when we, 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 do, we slander people, those are all shows our, our hearts, unclean hearts, when we lie. And by the way, if you are wondering if you are an unclean lips, just think about the last week. How many times did you lie? How many times did you speak badly? How many times did you gossip? How many times did you slander? And if you say, oh, I haven't done it, okay, how many times did you do it last year? Or last month? Andre, you don't understand, I'm not such a sinner. Hey, let me tell you, the penalty for one sin is death. One sin. How many sins have you done in this last year? Even if you live on the mountaintop and by yourself and nobody's around you to tempt you, let's say you make three sins a year. I think you do more than that. But let's say three, three sins a year. How many, how many years? Some of you are 20. Multiply that with three. You have 60 sins that you have to pay for. The penalty for one sin, the Bible says, is death. Why is that? Because God is so perfect and so holy that nobody can stay in His presence. It's like, imagine that he's, he would be a, filled with, with radioactive, um, or you'd be filled with radioactive substance or something, that when you get close to him, it would explode. If you bring any impurities close to his holiness, you would explode. You cannot be in his presence. So that means that there's no way in which you can go on, on, your, on your own, on your own righteousness, to be close to God, to be in the presence of God. Some of you think that maybe even by coming here, you're getting closer to God, or you think that you are checking off another box. You're putting yourself in, good, in some good relationship with God. You're thinking, man, I hope God is from heaven, uh, looks, is, is looking from heaven to me and sees that I am, I am doing another good thing. I'm being a good girl. I'm being a good boy. Hopefully at the end, you know, it's going to balance it out, and the good things are going to... I'll balance the bad things. I have a bad news for you. If you're not perfect, you won't see God. Maybe you've heard me share this, but a few years ago I was sharing with a family friend who, who was telling me that he just became a Catholic. And he actually had a ton of money, so the bishop of, or the cardinal of, of California told him that he becomes a Catholic. He has to uh, give all this money as a penance, but God will, will wipe it all, all his sins away. And he did. He gave a few million dollars and he became a Catholic. And, and I was on Christmas at his house and he was so happy for this event in his life. So at the end of this big party, he had a big house. And at the end of this party, he took me aside and he showed me the picture of, with him with the Cardinal of California, whatever they have, Bishop of California. He said, Andre, this is my confirmation, man. And... Uh, he looked at my face, and I wasn't very happy. And I said, hey, let me ask you a question. On a scale from 1 to 100, 100 being perfect and 0 being totally depraved, where do you think you are in terms of, like, your good deeds and bad deeds? And he said, I think I'm, like, 80% good and 20 bad. At least the guy was honest. And I said, let me tell you something, man. I have some really bad news. And I quoted to him, Matthew 5, 48. I just quoted to you, or we just read it yesterday. And in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, if you're not perfect, you won't see my Father in heaven who is perfect. And I said, man, this is what it says. And he got so upset. What do you mean, Andre? Are you perfect? I said, no, I'm not. Well, who can be perfect? I said, that's the problem, man. Nobody can be perfect. We are all messed up. We're so messed up that there's nothing in this world, nobody in this world, who can actually approach God on their own. I don't care how many good deeds you do. How many, I don't care how many millions you give away. By the way, this guy gave like 10 millions away last, or two years ago to a hospital locally because he wanted to do more good deeds. And I said to him, man, this doesn't make you any closer to God. You think you can buy yourself into God's kingdom. You cannot. If you see yourself... In God's, in God's glory, or compared with God's glory, you realize how wicked, how undeserving you are, and how deserving of death you are. Some of you grew up in a church and you think, man, you're such a good girl, such a good boy. Of course God should love you. Everyone loves you. You even love yourself. You remember like Garfield? 
a friend of his in the cartoon and says, Garfield, I love you so much. And Garfield said, I'm so happy that it makes two of us. Some of you think, of course, God is love and he should love me. Because ever since I was a little boy, I, boy and girl, I, I said poems to the church. I went on mission trips. I remember helping my grandma just mow her lawn. I even go to some neighbors. I even went to Romania and helped some people I don't even know to do whatever thing they wanted me to do. Of course, I'm a lovable person. But dear friend, I want to tell you this. Don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself with God. And this is the bad news of the gospel because if you don't understand the bad news, good news doesn't even make sense. If you don't understand that you are so filled with sin, infected with sin, then if you don't understand that, then the good news of Jesus doesn't make sense. Because you think that you do deserve it and you don't. And I was actually contemplating to bring a glass here of water and spit in it. I didn't want to gross you out, but if I spit in, my, in the glass and then I give it to you, what if I shake it very well? And you don't even see that I spit, actually, because it's all clear. Hopefully. Would you still drink it? Will you not? What if I, my spit, you'd be, if, if you had to, you would actually drink it, even though it would be gross you out. If there no, there's no more water, you can still drink it and be alive. But what if I put cyanide? Or rat poisoning, just a little bit. Even if you'll be thirsty, you wouldn't drink that. Why? Because you're going to die. You see, that's exactly what sin does in your life. Just a little bit infects everything. That's what totally depraved means. It doesn't mean that you're totally as bad as everyone could be. None of us are as bad as everyone could be. But every little aspect of our lives has been infected with sin. That's why he says here, woe is me, and not just me, but everyone else. So, Andre, okay, I get the bad news. How do we get right with God then? How do we get perfect? Because nobody can stay in the presence of God. Well, listen to what's going on next here. By the way, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the only way you can actually see your sinfulness is by looking at God's holiness. By the way, I remember Jonathan Edwards. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this guy. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians of North America. And he was one of the main instruments that God used for the first and second great awakening in the United States. And he says this, if you want to see revival, he says, one of the key ways in which revivals ha revival happens is when people recognize God's holiness and they see their sinfulness. Revival will never happen until we see God's holiness and we see our sinfulness. The good news of Jesus doesn't really make sense if you don't see God's holiness. That's what it says here. Woe of me, I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I'm going to die. I deserve to die. I disobey the King. Now you listen to the good news. This is a beautiful thing that happened next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched with your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven a seraph a seraphim an angel is holding a burning coal that he took from the altar with tongues but I don't think he took it because it's, it was too hot because this angel was a burning angel I think he took it with tongues because it was a holy coal interesting he took his coal, this coal with tongues because it's a holy coal it belongs to the place of sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness it comes from the altar I think the altar intended is here is a counterpart to the altar of burnt offering in the temple. Of course, remember, the temple in heaven was actually the real temple. What we had in, the word, in, in, the, in Israel was a counter to what was actually the real deal. That's what Moses saw, a tabernacle in heaven, and then he was supposed to, re, to, to 
reproduce what he saw in heaven. And he was doing a, a tabernacle, but then later on a temple. So what was going on? There was this altar that was a symbol of a sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, by the way, the high priest got coals of burnt offering in the temple courts. And he got coals for incense from the altar of burnt offerings and then took them into the holy place. He would go with this coals into the holy place and then he would bring a sacrifice in the name of his people once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the coal comes from the place of sacrifice, the place where a substitute was offered for the people for their sin. The antidote for Isaiah's danger and defilement comes from the God-provided place of atonement. He says something has to touch your lips, something that's been, that's been from the altar of atonement. Now, what does that mean? I think this is a symbol. It represents what Jesus will actually do for us on the altar of God's temple. The Bible says this, that Jesus actually died for us in our stead. This burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. He went to the place of sacrifice in our place. His dying love is the only power that can awaken people as dead to God as we are. And He awakens us. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest the good things to come, of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Remember? I just told you about this is in heaven. Not made with hands, that is easy to say, not of his creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of an aphor sprinkle those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what happens, God, guys. God knew that there's no way in us or for anyone else to get close to him. So what did he do? He sent his son, his only begotten son, to do what? Yes. But before that, he came to live in our place. Nathan, can I use this one? This one is that too? Okay, I'm just going to use my voice. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus came not only to die for us, because otherwise he could have just come on Monday and die on Friday. No? He could do that. But he came to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He came to live externally and internally the life that you and I are required to live, but we cannot live. And he Receive the righteousness or gain the righteousness in his humanity, 100% humanity, to live in your place and my place, so that when he dies on the cross, it's not only that our sins are forgiven, which they are, it's not only that he's a sacrifice for our sins in our stead on that burn offering altar, he's giving his life for you and I. Why? We don't deserve it because he loves us. He loves you. He loves you. But here's the interesting thing. Again, it doesn't just gives you forgiveness. The beautiful thing about God is it gives you Christ's righteousness on his behalf. Think about that. He's offering you his life, his credit for his life. It's not that he's only justified. You're also receiving his credit for everything he's done well. He's clothing you in His righteousness. He doesn't just forgive you. He cleanses you and gives you His Spirit, gives you His life so that Christ lives now in you. It's not only just as if you never sinned. It's also just as if you always did the right thing. That's the beautiful thing. And here you hear Isaiah saying what's going on. He says, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And we're going to talk about what forgiveness means. And why this is such a big deal that God forgave you and God has forgiveness. But remember this at this point here. 
Isaiah is shocked and mesmerized of God's redemption, God's provision. So what are some encouraged? By the way, Isaiah is encouraged. We haven't read the following verses, 8 to 13, but in verses 8 to 13, Isaiah is encouraged to go out and share with the people what he's seen. He's telling them, go out and tell the people what you've seen. Seen what? God's holiness. And not just that. Tell them to repent. And God tells them, tells them just watch out. FYI for you, Isaiah, they won't return to, to me. I just want to tell you. Actually, they're going to persecute you. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. And in the end, they're even going to kill you. Because they don't love me. Us in our own nature, we don't love God. We go against God in our nature. The Bible says nobody's seeking after God on their own. God has to do work of redemption in them. But nevertheless, we're called to go. It's not our job to turn people's hearts towards God. We are supposed to be ambassadors for God. And we should expect persecution. We should expect the worst. But on the same time, pray for the best and hope for the best in the same time. We're called to tell the world that God is on the, on the throne, that you should, not, you should not be anxious. By the way, did you know this, especially because of COVID? Anxiety is through the roof. People are more depressed than ever. People don't know what to do with their lives. Many of you, maybe you're here, you don't know what to do with your life. You're like, man, I wonder what's going to happen in a few years. Some of you are confused. There's a lot of people out there confused about their identity, their gender, their lives, everything. Why? Because there's no more moral compass. They think, who should I go for finding truth? Because truth seems to be so subjective. There's nobody to go to with truth. Even churches don't uphold God's truth anymore. And I want to encourage you to go out there and tell the world that God is on the throne and He has a plan with your life and He knows your identity and He wants to use you for His glory. Don't be anxious. Don't be depressed. Don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. God is in control. And relax. Because God is sitting and is enjoying Himself. He knows what's going to happen. When you wake up in the morning, stop thinking, how am I going to pay my bills? What's going to happen next year? Am I going to get married? Am I not going to get married? Am I going to go to college? Am I not going to go to college? Am I going to have a good job? Am I have a 401k retirement? My parents will be alive. What is this going to happen? Stop worrying. Actually, when you're worrying, you're not giving God glory. On the contrary, you're telling the world that you're no different than them. Jesus says, don't be anxious of anything. Don't worry. Why? We're diminishing the greatness of God through our worrying and anxiety. Because guys, if we who are Christians, by the way, if you're a Christian tonight, if you are anxious and worrying all the time about our future, then why are you surprised that people who don't know God are anxious and worrying about the future? You should be relaxed. When you wake up every morning, you should be God, thank you for another day. I know you're on the throne. I'm your child. I trust you. I know everything in my life is in your hands. I'm going to go about and be an ambassador for your glory and help me, Lord, to do that faithfully. Amen. That should be your heart. should be my heart. We should tell the world, God is on the throne. And if you're not a Christian tonight here, I want to tell you the bad news and emphasize that without God, you're lost. Without God, you're going to continue to try to find meaning in life. And I don't have time to walk you through a text that is one of my favorites. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, in which Solomon walks you through the things he's, he's done to find happiness. And you think, I'm going to find happiness. And he walks you through, hey, I tried to find happiness in buildings, in material things. I tried to find happiness in all this stuff. It didn't work. He was one of the most, the richest guy in the world, in the world, in all his history. And he says, it doesn't work. Some of you try to find meaning and happiness in relationships. You know what? Solomon had a thousand women, 700 wives, and 300 concubines. Can you imagine that? Just think, let that sink in for a second. If you were one of his wives, you'd see him every three years. Hey, Solomon, I'm, I'm Jessica. I'm uh, wife number 745. 
He says, I tried then to find happiness in all kinds of, all kinds of partying. And, the, and there's traditions that say out, that, out there that he, he partied for 150 days. And you know what he says at the end of all this stuff where he tries to find happiness? And by the way, you're thinking the same thing. You're thinking, no, no, no. I know these guys are saying to me that I won't find happiness in this or that, but man, I'm going to want to be a lawyer, the best lawyer ever, and that's going to be, bring me fulfillment. Or no, I'm going to emphasize my whole life is to be a wife and a mother, and that's going to be the greatest thing. I'm going to just be at home. Or some of you are thinking, no, if I have money, I'm going to have this big palace and the big mansion and cars and servants and a butler. We're going to reinvent the butler thing from Downton Abbey. And we're thinking about all kinds of stuff that we're going to do. And you think, oh, I, I know all this stuff told me, all these guys told me that things are different, uh, they were different. I'm going to show them I'm going to be different. I want to tell you it's not going to work. You know what Solomon says at the end in that verse 11 in, in Ecclesiastes 2? He says, everything is in vain. And if you don't understand what vain means, he says it's like, it's a comma there, and then it gives you an analogy. It's like running, chasing after the wind. Now, if you saw me today running around the campus here, and I was in my gear of athletics, even though I don't have much that, me and, me and uh, Val, we were talking about running today. Can you imagine both of us? that We were <laughs> running, and they stop us. Hey, guys, what you guys doing? And we're like, hey, <sighs> we're chasing after the wind. You'd be like, oh, guys. Okay, I think we have to call the nurse. <laughs> Alex, hey man, can you, can you call the nurse, man? This guy's, I think, altitude, there's a little bit problems with that. Not enough water. You'd be a fool if you say, hey, I have better tennis shoes than this guy's, and I'm better fit than Val and Andre. I don't have the stomach that these guys have, so I can actually run faster than them. I can chase the wind as opposed to this guy's. Wouldn't you be a fool to do that? Wouldn't you be a fool to actually, wouldn't we be fools if we run after the wind? But that's exactly what everyone does every day. And you think, oh, no, no, I'm better. Last October, I sat down with a guy. He actually, not long ago, just switched in the billionaire section. Became a billionaire. And he started coming to our church, and he heard that I speak about being born again. He said, he took me to lunch. He said, man, tell me, what does it mean to be born again? And after three hours of walking him through John 3, he said, hey, I need to hear more of this. And you promised me that you have, you'll share this with my friends. Interesting, in January, he got very sick. And on his deathbed, he left word that I should speak to at his funeral from John 3. So in April, I had the chance to speak to this group of guys. There were 700 people there. And there were people from all kinds of walks of life. Most of them were senators, congressmen, most of them from California people that just came there for the show. I remember sitting down with Devin Nunes, the guy who was the intelligence committee off, whatever it was for Trump, other guys there. Actually, someone called me later and said, did you realize that there was over 50 people in there that were billionaires? And I spoke from John 3. And you could see on their faces, I, I pretty much said what I shared to you here. I said, don't keep running for the things that you think is going to bring you happiness because they won't. And I had dozens of people coming at the end to me and say, thank you for this message. I never heard anything like this. I didn't say anything special. I just read the word for them. But here's the thing that I want to share with you. Tell this to the, tell this word to the lost world. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I pray that this week will be a day, the week in which you give your life to Christ, in which you commit your life to Jesus, in which you stop running to find identity in all kinds of things but Christ. God wants you to know Him as your Father, the one who gives you life, who's the truth and the way. Come to Him. There's nothing you need to do. Just get on your knees tonight as you leave this place. You can maybe stay behind. If you want, I can pray with you. There's nothing magical in my prayer. I just want you to stay behind and say, hey, I want to pray. Or pray with someone in your room. Or pray sometimes this week. Just get on your knees and ask God to forgive you of your sins. And tell, you, tell Him to give you new life. And He will do it. And if you're already a Christian, be bold. Be courageous. Share about your King. He's on the throne. And He's holy. And one day He's going to keep us to account. And by the way, let me finish with this. Make sure that your life matches your message. Because you cannot 
live your life like everyone else. And then, by the way, hey, Jesus loves you. Did you know that? God is holy. Did you know that? It doesn't look like you serve a holy God. Maybe I shared this story with you in previous times, but I think it's interesting. I finished with this. A few years ago, I was serving in a, our student department, and a student invited me to go to his home. His dad was a drug dealer. And I went to his house. He lived in a trailer. And I remember going inside, and he was actually doing his work. He was having a little waiter there, a little uh, balance, whatever you call that. The, the, he weighed stuff and splitting things and little bags of stuff. And he thought that I'm a client. And I'm like, no, I'm a pastor. I came here to talk with you about your son and about Jesus. And he's like, oh, brother. I'm like, oh, brother. And he goes and picks up a Bible. And he said, hey, man, I'm a Christian too. And he shows me. He's opened the first page. This is the Bible he received at his baptism. And it was a known church in our town. And he starts hugging me, saying, I'm a brother in Christ. And I'm like, man, wait, 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 wait. What? You're a drug dealer and, uh, and you're a brother in Christ? And he's, t- he's a big guy. Wait, wait, what? You're one of those guys who judges people? I'm like, man, I, I, I'm, I don't know how you do this in America, man, but I'm telling you in Romania, when we say we're Christians, we actually mean it. And I think you, ro- you wore the wrong T-shirt. Oh, that's very mean to say. I'm like, hey, let's, let me give you an analogy. If you're a, I saw he had the Lakers stuff on his house. I said, let's say you're a Lakers. I'm, I say that I'm a Lakers uh, player, and I come here with a Lakers T-shirt. You never heard of me. I'm just a new, a new Lakers uh, transfer from Europe, and I, I come all prepared in all my gear, and you're like, dude, I, I haven't heard of you, but let's play some ball. And you give me a ball, and I try to shoot it at the hoop, and, man, I don't even hit the target. I'm not even in the ballpark. And I'm like, hey, no, I need some water, all that. You give me whatever you think I need, Gatorade or whatever. After half an hour, I still don't even make one hoop. You tell me, man, I think you're wearing the, word, the wrong T-shirt. You might be a baseball player or a soccer player, but definitely you're not a base, uh, basketball player. You're not with the Lakers. And I said to him, man, it's the same thing. You say that you're a Christian, you have a Bible, and you have a baptism date, but, dude, Christians don't do drugs. They're not dealers, even. And, of course, he kicked me out of his house. I thought he took a gun. I didn't realize that people have guns at that time, but uh, he was a big guy, so he kicked me out. He says, otherwise he's going to pull the gun at me. So I went out. Um, but it was shocking for me. And I realized I encounter people like that every day. Now, this was a pretty dramatic example. I can go in other people's lives. I was reading an article in Voice of the Martyrs, and I finished with this. And we were reading with my girls in the mornings. We read from that, art, from that mag- magazine that they send monthly. And we were reading about some Christians that were persecuted in different countries because they were accused of their Christians. And it came to me this question. And I asked my daughters, would anyone accuse me for being a Christian? Would anyone accuse you for being a Christian if persecution comes? Would they say that your life your behavior, your attitude, your language is of such that they would accuse you for being a Christian? Think about it. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this message about your holiness would really penetrate our hearts and minds and really make us think of who you are. Remind us, Lord, for the ones who are Christians, that you are on the throne, that you're, you are holy, that you are the one in charge of all things that we should trust you, and that we should seek to please you more than we please anyone else, that we should not fear people but fear you because you are worthy of praise and of worship. I pray, Lord, that if we say we are Christians, that we're also going to be holy as you called us to be holy. And we cannot be holy if we don't have your Holy Spirit, if we are not on a regular basis dependent on your gospel and the Holy Spirit. So I pray that every morning we wake up Every moment of our day, we will remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit in us is calling us to holiness. Give us the strength to be different in a world that just is so different than us, calls us to just follow our flesh. We cannot do it without you. And Father, if there are people here tonight who don't know you, who don't recognize how holy you are and how sinful they are, I pray that tonight would be a night of conviction. I pray that you'll show them how 
messed up, how sinful they are, and how much they need your forgiveness, how much they need Christ's righteousness, without which we cannot stay in your presence. I pray that tonight would be the day of salvation for many. This week, Lord, I pray that you do a work of changing and transforming lives. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's listening people said, Amen.